Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Gospel according to St. Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. We're in the 8th chapter, starting with verse 22. And in his exposition of the life of Christ, there are two stories, two very interconnected stories that he's about to present us with that delve outside of, to our modern ears, believability. And yet they come to us through the pen of a physician, a scientist. Someone who was schooled in the scientific method as it was understood in that time. Someone who was a researcher. Someone who, in fact, job it was to go and collect these stories, to uh, find witnesses, to give evidence of the difference that this Messiah figure made in Israel. So we're not talking about uh, someone who just simply copied a couple of stories here and there, we're talking about a doctor who gained evidence for the sake of presenting that evidence to be scrutinized. There are many scholars, including myself, that believe that the gospel according to St. Luke and uh, the, the second volume of his work, the book of Acts, were not simply teaching tools for the early church, but were in fact the court documents that were presented in defense of the Apostle Paul. Before you had to, before if you appealed to Caesar uh, during a Roman, uh, if you were a Roman citizen and you were convicted of a crime, you had the right to appeal to Caesar. But your documents, the research of your case, had to precede you to your consulars and to Caesar himself. So many think that the, what occasioned the writing of this book was Luke, while Paul was in bondage, going through the, uh, the area of Israel, going through the, the different uh, layers of Paul's story and finding people's testimonies that were corroborating what he had gone through. So we're not talking here about just an account for the sake of religious, uh, religious advancement. We're talking about potentially legal testimony here. And again, this was pinned by a physician. So we talk, when we talk about demons being cast out, I ask that you look at these scriptures through the eyes of your heart, through the works of faith, through what you know to be true. And what these two stories, if, if we can boil them down, tell us about Christ is that not only was he a figure of nature, not only was he a man with authority as a rabbi, but he was also very much a supernatural authority. In the one instance, you have a lake that was 
about to overturn a boat with people on it that had been fishing in those waters for the extent of their entire lives. In another instance, you have a person who had been filled with demonic forces to the point that when Jesus asks this person point blank, what is your name? He says, we are legion, for we are many. So this isn't an incident where, where one single tormentor enters this person. In fact, the witnesses, the swineherds that saw what was about to happen, visibly saw what was going on. So let's open up the Gospel according to St. Luke, beginning with chapter 8, verse 22. When you get there in your copy of God's Word, please say amen. The physician writes, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, was being filled with water. And they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and all of the raging waters. Now, I want you to pay attention to that for a second. Of all the things that the disciples were probably expecting the master to do, this was not one of them. They had seen him perform signs and wonders before. They had seen him cast demons out. They had seen him heal the sick. But this was a storm. And this wasn't just any storm. They were probably wanting his advice. They were probably wanting to ask him, okay, if, do we change tack? Do we lower the anchor here? Do we, do we go to the, the, uh, the nearest shore and wait? What do we do? And instead of doing what they were expecting, the master gets up, walks to the prow of the boat, and says, peace, be still. Of all the techniques that Jesus could have taught them in that instance, arguing with a storm probably was not one of them. You would think after such an episode that the disciples would have tore off their raincoats and started hooping and hollering and shouting, glorifying God and praising Him the way that they did when they brought in the, the catch of fish when Peter first met him. But I want you to notice the reaction here. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one to another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Or in some of your translations, what manner of man is this? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. What manner of man is this? He approaches the bow of the boat. And in an instant, 
the wind halts and the sea beneath them, the lake beneath them, turns as calm and as clear as crystal. But they don't respond to Jesus with praise and adoration and thanksgiving. They respond to him in wonder and in fear. Now, this is one of those stories that we suffer um, from our, uh, our Sunday school coloring books from. Because there's a lot in here that we don't normally guess. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea. It's a lake. And a very small lake at that. And it has two big characteristics. Number one is that it sets at a very low point, several hundred feet below sea level, even though it's inland. It's a freshwater lake, but again, it's very tiny. It's surrounded on all sides by mountains, and those mountains form kind of a wind tunnel, so that when the Mediterranean breeze comes into the land, it funnels all of that air all at once, like blowing through a straw onto this lake. So whenever a storm comes up, it's almost always a severe storm. But here's the thing, no fewer than seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. They were career sailors. Some of them were owners in a fishing enterprise. They knew their business. They didn't have to ask for advice. These were the very waters that they were used to sailing on. They knew the Sea of Galilee. They knew the potential dangers to it. They knew how to avoid it. And yet this was a storm that was so outlandish that it frightened even them. And it scared them to death. Some of you know that I have, uh, well, I'll save that for later. But there was something special about this storm. Something that took all of them in the grip of terror for their very lives. They knew the waters, they knew their craft, they knew their vessel, they knew how to survive. Why was this different? In the next story, we're going to find out, I believe. But I want you to keep this in the back of your mind. This was a squall unlike anything that they had ever seen or been prepared for. They were astonished, the wording suggests, by its magnitude. And again, we're talking about a region known for its storms. This was a small lake, comparatively speaking. They should have either been able to navigate safely to another uh, port or at least drop anchor and wait it out, but no. They were in the grips of such a sudden wind gust, rain, hail, and so forth, that they knew that if something wasn't done quickly, they were going to die. And Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep. So there are two things. Number one, how in the world can you sleep through this? And number two, this storm is so bad that we're about to capsize. We need to do something. We don't know what to do. Let's ask the rabbi. That's desperation. So they walk to the back of the boat. They raise the master, who again, in their mind's eye, is a holy man. He's a teacher. He's, he's, he's an instructor of the word of God. What in the world is he going to do about a boat?
So they rise him up. And he walks out. And he doesn't teach them new sailing techniques. He doesn't tell them where to go. He doesn't take a look at the storm and and navigate them around it. He argues with nature itself. Peace. Be still. And in that instant, it all changes. And they knew that the person that they were dealing with in that instant wasn't the person that they thought that he was. They had come into the presence of not just a holy teacher, but the Holy One. When he was recruited by Jesus, remember, and in the shores of this same lake, after he pulled up a catch that almost capsized his boat, Peter fell on his knees before Christ and said to him, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. They had discovered that they were not just in the presence of a holy teacher, but the Holy One of Israel. Who is it? What manner of man is this that controls nature, that can yell into the storm, that can calm the seas with but a word? Who is this manner of man that can do all these wonderful things and heal the sick and bring forth the dead and cast out demons? They were in the presence of the holy. They, sinful men, fallen figures, realized that the person that they were with didn't fit any label. He didn't fit any kind of box that they could construct in their minds. This was somebody entirely different. And what happens to us when we get in the presence of somebody that we cannot define? This was an instance where sin was suddenly confronted by righteousness, where guilt was suddenly confronted by judgment, where weakness was suddenly confronted by power, where ignorance was suddenly confronted by divine wisdom, where nature itself was confronted by the supernatural. Everything that they thought that they knew was just turned on its head in an instant. A place where vulgarity or where that was common, which is the actual definition of that word, that which is common, meaning fallen, feeble, fickle, finite, frustrating, what in the Jewish lexicon would be called unclean. When all of that comes into the very presence of holiness, how would we react? How would we react? We used to, as a tagline, say the words, what would Jesus do? Let me ask you, what if he did come back? What if what we knew about the book of Revelation uh, was all symbolism? I'm, I'm not saying that it is. This is a thought experiment. Just bear with me for a second. What if the Lord of this church ended up at those doors right now and wanted to come in? How would we react? Would we suddenly scramble and try to get our stuff in order? Would we suddenly get on our knees before God and ask for His forgiveness knowing that there's still stuff within us that has yet to be resolved? Would we ask for our pet sins, that which we hide in the back closets of our mind, to be suddenly flushed out, what would we do if we were in the presence of the holy? 
There was no praise, no thanksgiving, no party thrown on this boat. There was astonishment and there was fear. Because that which is holy was suddenly realized. David writes to us, Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord's glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His what? His holiness. And it doesn't say to treat Him casually. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. What manner of man is this? Suddenly they were confronted by the fact that he was not merely the rabbi, but the person standing before them was the ultimate truth. He was the incarnate word of God. He was a, the prophet after the order of Moses. When they ask him, are you that prophet? This is the person that they're talking about. The person prophesied since the book of Exodus when Moses said that there will come one after me. He was the creator and ruler of all nature. The reason that he had the authority to say no to the winds and be still to the sea was because he created them. He is the Holy One of Israel. And this was news to their ears because they had treated them, him as their teacher, as their older brother, as their Lord. But now they're starting to recognize that he is much, much more as we should. Continuing on with our reading of Luke. They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across from the Lake of Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. I want you to recognize that it was Jesus himself that asked to be brought here. And he didn't have to go hunting the demon ran to him. This indicates that the storm was not just a storm. This was Jesus' mission. This one person was the person that Jesus had gone after. This is the person that, the, that which was inside him didn't want Jesus to confront. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he had lived in the tombs. Now, let me uh, expound on that for just a second because we have, again, I think that we're kind of the victims of our own Sunday school coloring books here. Because we have this vision of a person who is trying to live and sleep in a graveyard. In Israel at this point in time, as we can tell through the story of how Jesus himself was buried, you weren't put into a large box and then sunk into the ground like we do today. Once a person had passed away, they, were, they, were, they, they entered into a state of rapid decomposition, meaning that a lot of the oils, a lot of the incense, a lot of the spices that were placed upon the body was used to desiccate the body so that the flesh would go away and they would take the bones that were left 
they would hide that body away in a cave somewhere for a little while until that took place. Then a granite box about yay big, about two to three feet across, would be taken by specially conditioned people, because remember, to touch a dead body made you ceremonially unclean, so these people had to be designated, and more often than not, they were treated as outcasts. But it was their job to go into these tombs and to take the remains that was left over, put them in this granite box, chisel on it the name of the individual and their family, and then move that to what is basically a mausoleum. So we're not talking about a graveyard here. We're talking about a set of plots, caves hewn out of rock, designed for dead bodies to decay in. This was depravity on a scale unimaginable by us of today. And this wasn't a life that this person had to lead. We, we see written later on, Jesus tells him to go to his house. So we know that he's a property-owning person. We know that he is someone that had some means at one point in time. But because of what was influencing him right now, he had forsaken all of that. He chose to live with the dead and rotting, the corruption, and naked in shame. For a long time, the mad head not worn clothes and lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When Jesus saw, when this man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. He knew who he was in the front, who was before him. He knew what Jesus could do to him in an instant. The man who had authority over nature also had authority over everything that is supernatural. The demons within him knew their final destination and they were begging him for mercy. Don't torture me. Son of the Most High for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of this man, and many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven, from, uh, driven by the demons into this solitary place. <clears throat> Jesus asked, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, the abuso, the bottomless pit. Now there's a lot to unpack here, so please bear with me and write this stuff down. Number one, hell. There are two words in Greek for hell. Tartarus, meaning the place of judgment, and abyss, meaning bottomless pit. Now we think colloquially of hell as being a cave with a bunch of fire going on in the background where the, the devil and his minions are out torturing people. I remember once it was depicted as a, as a cave with fire in The Simpsons in an episode where 
the lead character Homer was forced to literally eat his sins by devouring every donut in the world. This is the way that our society thinks of the concept of hell. The Bible describes it with this word, which means a bottomless pit. A bottomless pit with fire. A bottomless pit with torment. We hear from uh, the words of Milton, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven come from the voice of the enemy. And yet he will have no authority there. Like every person who is judged of their sins without the grace of God, their judgment will be absolute. They will be thrown into a place with no mercy, no hope. A pit where they will fall through all eternity in the blaze of a never-ending fire. No hope, no comfort, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the way that the Bible describes what these demons are begging for relief from. They beg Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Um, the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they rushed into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. In other words, these unclean animals chose death rather than to have this happen to them. So they ended up going to the abyss anyway. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, I want you to underline that because we think of this as a invisible reaction. But when a bunch of Gentile swine herds are able to comprehend by seeing what happened, again, this, this, the Gerizines, they were Gentiles. They were Romans. They were herding pigs. These were people that didn't have a working knowledge of the things of God so far. They didn't have their own rabbis. Supposedly, they, they may have had a small Jewish population, but this was a predominantly Gentile area. They were herding pigs. So when they saw something come from this guy, multiply like a fire burst and enter into the swine, and then the swine go crazy and drown themselves rather than be subject to this presence, they were able to run to the town and to tell them what had happened. They ran off and reported this to the town the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man who had, the demons had gone out, sitting with Je at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Did they celebrate this man's new condition? Did they celebrate the favor that Christ had given to him? Did they throw him a party and welcome him gladly back in their own community? No, the Bible reports that they were afraid. Those who had seen it told all the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus not to stay and celebrate, not to be welcomed in, not to have a feast thrown in his honor, not to be given the keys of the city. They asked him to leave. They asked him to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out, however, 
begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home, go back to your house and tell how much God has done for you. Proclaim the good news of the gospel, in other words. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is a question asked by the Pharisees at another encounter. By what authority does this man cast out demons? Now, I know that a lot of you are thinking this is probably a case where someone was simply mentally ill. These people were living in ignorant times. They didn't know what they saw. We have a really bad habit of confusing the early Middle Ages with the Bible's testimonial period. The rabbis of the time were well aware of the difference between mental illness, lunacy, as some of your Bibles would have translated it, and demon possession. The rabbis of the time and the priests long before them were actually taught how to tell. Is the person's skin mottled? Are they able to perform violent acts of extreme physical strength that a person of their size and weight could not possibly have performed? The man was chained, and he broke those chains. Roman steel couldn't hold him back. Were they able to know things that they shouldn't possibly have known? Speak languages that they possibly could not have understand? Were they speaking with a voice that didn't sound like their own? Now, were there cases where these things could have been misinterpreted? Absolutely, but they knew the difference. So to say that demon possession didn't happen at this point in time is painting with an awfully wide brush because they actually had schools of thought already in place to, pre to prevent that kind of misunderstanding from happening. Not only that, but in this particular culture, the understanding that the supernatural was in conflict was very much in front of them. That is true. What we can also take a look at here is the fact that Jesus himself, the Son of God, was upon the earth and Satan's attempt at bribery of him hadn't worked. So if you do some digging into this and you look in your commentaries and you ask about this section, one of the things that you're going to come across that's brought to us historically is that because the enemy was afraid that the day of the Lord was in fact about to take place, the enemy literally broke hell out or tore opened it, marshaled all of his forces to attack the people of God all at once in an attempt to try to rout Jesus' work. This is why you see it more often in the New Testament than anywhere else in biblical history. The enemy of the enemy was physically on the earth. But who was in control of this, this scenario? I want you to understand these. Number one, Jesus had asked the disciples to go to this place. Number two, a storm appeared without warning and took people by surprise who knew these waters in, out, and sideways. Professional fishermen were frightened on their home waters. Arriving where Jesus had arrived, he was immediately confronted by the enemy. The demons knew who he was completely. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was the Son of God. And they react in fear, and they beg Jesus for mercy. 
when the confrontation was over and when the fallen of humanity came to see what had happened, Jesus was not treated as a savior. Jesus was not treated as a hero. He wasn't treated as the Messiah, certainly. He was treated as the center of a disturbance. Our Savior was called as troublemaker. He was identified as the source of their fear. He was a challenge to their comfort level. Have you ever been part of a place or a family that is so um, rife with confrontation for them not to be rife with confrontation? That upsets them. So they start confrontations. Someone always stirs the pot. When there is finally peace, when the people are used to war within each other, and peace finally happens, they want to go back to that homeostasis. They want to go back to the time of trouble. So there's somebody that will get into that situation and stir the pot to reform a, a sense of trouble. Have you ever been there? This is what was going on here. In their fallen state, they had been cured of something that was, that was a disturbance in their midst. And they decided that the cure was worse than the disturbance. Christ was the problem, not the solution. So they asked him to leave. You want a practical question from all of these? Here it is. What would we have done? What would many of the churches of our land have done? If the Holy One comes in and confronts, saying you can't do this, the gospel never intended for that. These teachings are not what I intended. Your lifestyle isn't what I wanted. It's not what I taught you to be. If the Savior came in and proclaimed those kind of teachings to us, how would we receive it? That's the challenge of the Scripture. Is He really our Lord or do we claim Him as Savior only? Is he really the Holy One to us, or do we treat him as common, as our friend, as our buddy? Not knowing that he is the omniscient son of an omnipresent God. When you bow your heart and your head in prayer, don't you know that the very king of the universe is having an appointment with you? This is not only a privilege of yours, but this is also a time where you need to have reverence for the person who you're coming into contact with. The challenge of this scripture, the rubber meets the road, if you want to put it, is how are we treating our Savior? Is he the solution or are we acting like he's the problem and ignoring his teachings, ignoring the fact that he is Lord, ignoring what he has for us in his will? When we come into a house of worship, when we seek the throne of grace in prayer together, when we lift our voices in praise, do we do so having prepared our hearts to meet the Holy One? Or is it just that thing we do on Sunday? I'm not talking about your clothing. I'm talking about the condition of your heart. How do you prepare your heart to have your appointment with God? 
There are many. I'll use that as an example while I'm thinking about it. There are many that claim that they dress in worship service the same way as they would any other time because they want to present themselves authentically before God. Not covering themselves over, not disguising themselves, but being authentic who they are before a holy God. There are others that try to dress to the nines so that they present themselves at their best when they go boldly before the throne of grace in prayer. And yet, on the other side of that coin, there are those that come just as they are, not because they want to be authentic before a holy God, but because they didn't want to put any thought into what they were going to wear that day. There are those that dress to the nines before they come in here, not for the sake of being at their best before they come before the throne of grace, but because they want to be seen. They want to attract attention to themselves. They want to have a sense of pride about them that says, oh, look how good and how wealthy and how strong in the faith I am. Look at me. What a good boy am I. You see the difference? The exterior work doesn't matter. The sacrifice that takes place in your heart does. The intentionality of why we do what we do, understanding why we believe what we believe, is of paramount importance to not only developing your faith, but sustaining you through all of life's circumstances and strengthening the bond that you have with God. Do we treat the holy as common? This was the fear in the disciples' hearts. They were in the the, the living word of God was standing right in front of them. They thought he was the rabbi. This is God. The city wanted their demons because they didn't want to think about what the world was like outside of them. They got used to it. This was someone causing problems because they instituted change. It didn't matter if it was a positive change, it was change. Get out. They told the Son of God. In our own fallen state, if he were to come and ask to take part in one of our worship services, to examine our statement of beliefs, or to go to our homes and to have dinner with our families and fellowship, would we welcome him? Would we bless him? Would, he offer, would we offer him our praise and adoration? Or would we have that attitude that he's not our Savior and Lord, he's the troublemaker? The one who wants to institute change. The one who's bringing trouble. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead, the deity lives bodily. And in Christ you have been taught, brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. John, when he is writing his version of the Christmas story, tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through all things, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. 
And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mentioned this last Sunday, and it still holds true for this message. You cannot be confronted by the Word of God and ignore it. The Word of God is evidence that requires a verdict. You can get angry towards it and rebuke it. Won't do you any good, but you can try. Or you can fall into conviction and accept it and be blessed by it, but you cannot ignore it. The authority of Christ, the Bible tells us, that He is the divine King of all creation. My King is the living Word of God incarnate. My King is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. My King is the righteous judge of all of creation. My King is the possessor of all authority, natural and supernatural. That's my King. My King is the highest being, the one that ripped time in half. So that when we reckon our own history, we reckon our time before, that which, before when Christ arrived and after his coming to earth. My king is not only ruler over me, but whether they want to accept him or not, he's the ruler over everything. That's my king. Do you know him today? Do you know him this morning? If he comes to you, will you welcome him with all the majesty that he is due? Or will you dismiss him as the troublemaker? <clears throat> Matthew remembers in his account of the gospel, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied with the same thing that we hear today. Some say John the Baptist. In other words, some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He was a good man. He had a divine encounter. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? This is the question he's asking all of us. Not just on Sunday mornings, but all the time. Who do you say that I am? In your life, when temptations meet you at the door, who do you say that I am, Christ asks us. When we are confronted by what the Bible tells us about what the world should be like versus what we actually see the world being like, Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? When we ignore the hungry, when we do not hear the cry of the needy, when we do not love our neighbors as ourselves, when we choose sin over righteousness willingly, Jesus keeps asking us, who do you say that I am? When we bow our heads in prayer, and instead of amening along with the person who is leading the prayer, Jesus is still asking us, are you, are you saying something to me? Or are you just letting somebody else speak for you? Who do you say that I am? Hylon 
the Lord asks you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter asked or answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The first utterance of a Christian confession of faith. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The practical question that this scripture begs us to answer. It presents us, just as Luke did all those centuries ago, it presents us with evidence that Jesus, the person that we know, Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, the evidence asks us to conclude. And it presents a case that he is the Lord of nature and he's the Lord of the supernatural. The verdict, not just in this setting, but in every piece of your walk of life, the verdict that is demanded and that, is, that keeps being asked over and over again. Who do you say that I am? So Heavenly Father, as we draw the service of the word to a close this morning. Help us to boldly proclaim with one voice, though we are many. Just as Peter had the courage to do so many years ago, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That you are the King of all kings. That all earthly power belongs to you that you are the only God above all that exists, that all authority, all power, all majesty, and all glory belong to you and you alone. Lord, help us to recognize whenever we come to you in prayer, whenever we come to you in song, or whenever we come to you, Lord, just for the regular day-to-day decisions of our lives, help us to understand fully in whose name we go so that as we carry you with us in our hearts, we also know that there is nowhere where we go where we are not in your presence. Help us to not treat you as that which is common, but that which is truly holy. For everything that we do, everything we say, everything that we think, transform us to the person you would have us to be. And if any are in the sound of my voice with decisions hanging on their heart. Decisions to accept your love. Decisions to have their life be changed for the better. Decisions for hope. Decisions for the family of God. Or for those who simply need a special touch of your hands. Help us now. Trouble that person's heart and bring them forward so that they may receive fully the warmth and the shelter of your embrace. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.